Welcome, one, welcome all to Sarah Gonzalez Unfiltered. I, of course, am Sarah Gonzalez. It would be weird if my name was something different and they named the show Sarah Gonzalez Unfiltered. Uh, Today, we have FBI whistleblower Kyle Serafin, who is joining me with shocking details about the investigation or lack thereof. I should say the lack of investigation into the J6 pipe bomber. Yeah. Remember that pesky pipe bomber? Well, the FBI and Biden regime would really love it if you would just forget about that guy, forget that it happened. Let's not talk about that anymore. Let's let bygones be bygones. But I haven't forgotten about it. And I want to talk to Kyle. Also, I will be talking with the Montana couple who says their daughter has been taken from them by the state because they wouldn't affirm her chosen gender. Yes, state-sponsored kidnapping of minors in Montana of all places. So we will get into that. Be prepared to be infuriated. And just as a reminder, don't ever think that because you are in a supposedly conservative area that this couldn't happen to you. But first, the verdict is in for Aiden Sorovsky, the now disgracefully resigned Democrat staffer who was caught having anal sex with his gay lover on the grounds of the Capitol. And I will say, After investigating the matter, U.S. Capitol Police have determined that for now, we are closing the investigation into the facts and circumstances surrounding a sex video that was recorded inside the Hart Senate office building on the morning of Wednesday, December 13th. After consulting with federal and local prosecutors, as well as doing a comprehensive investigation and review of possible charges, it was determined that, despite a likely violation of congressional policy... There is currently no evidence that a crime was committed. Hmm. All right. So evidence of a crime, does that actually matter now? Because I, I don't, it didn't matter if you're Donald Trump. Doesn't matter at all. 91 indictments, all of them are complete, completely bogus. Doesn't matter if you're Donald Trump. Doesn't matter if you're a pro-life protester peacefully exercising your First Amendment right only to face uh, like 11 years in federal prison for the act of... <gasps> Praying. Yes. Praying, singing hymns, requesting that mothers, you know, maybe just don't murder their own children in the womb. Evidence doesn't matter if you're one of the many J6ers who were thrown in prison for going on a guided tour of the Capitol by the very same Capitol police themselves who couldn't seem to find any evidence. Now, the Democrats want you to believe that they take very seriously the dignity of the office, the Dignity of the Capitol. That was why January 6th was, you know, the worst attack on our democracy ever. Worse than 9-11. More terrible than Pearl Harbor. You cannot overstate, according to the Democrats, how devastating January 6th was. How dare those red hat wearing, nasty, ultra MAGA extremist Republicans who, you know, just want to be left the hell alone by the federal government come do the awful thing of putting their feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk because the Capitol is just that sacred. So sacred, in fact, that we need to teach these people a lesson. The guy who picked up a lectern inside of the Capitol took a picture, an iconic 
picture, I might add. I love this picture. Well, what he did was he walked 30 feet with it before setting it down and leaving completely nonviolently, walked out nonviolently, no confrontation with Capitol Police. He received prison time, an ankle monitor upon release, a year of supervised release, a $5,000 fine, 200 hours of community service, and had his Second Amendment rights taken from him, all because he picked up a lectern and set it back down. They were somehow, somehow able to find the crime for that, for that act. But a gay dude gets bent over in a Senate office building and takes it up the tailpipe on video. I can't think of a more desecrating thing to do on this sacred grounds than put a wiener in your anus in broad daylight. And suddenly, there's no crime committed here. We looked everywhere. We looked up. We looked down. We looked all around. Well, we didn't check inside his butthole, but maybe we should. Perhaps the evidence is right in there. These people are not serious people. They have no morals. They have no values. They have no virtues. Now, don't get me wrong. They virtue signal, but they are not virtuous people. They don't care about law and order or decency or sacred grounds. That's why they let their cities burn to the ground with no repercussions and a bunch of dropped charges in the summer of 2020. I'm sorry, the summer of love. It's why they're employing DAs across the country, Soros-backed DAs, to go light on actual criminals. It's why they literally let people out of jails in the name of COVID. It's why they embrace illegals coming right on into the country. It's why they host transgenders who flash their fake boobies on the White House lawn. They don't give a crap about decency. They don't care about actual laws. They merely want to use them to weaponize against you. But, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I thought there is something a little bit fitting about this act being perfectly acceptable on capital grounds. It is rather reminiscent of what the federal government does to us every damn day. Now, I want to uh, throw back up here. Yes, this meme. We try to laugh here so we don't cry. This is the Democrats Nobody is Above the Law starter pack. And for those of you who are listening on podcast, it shows the January 6th lectern guy, as I mentioned before. It, of course, shows the QAnon shaman with his horns, who we now know was guided by the Capitol Police. He engaged in a guided tour uh, by Capitol Police on Capitol grounds and had to serve jail time. You have uh, the man who dared put his feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk, who all apparently committed crimes. Crime, crime, crime. And then you have this guy with uh, his exit-only pipe just thrust out there for the world to see and happened right in a Senate building. Apparently, that is not a crime. It's disgusting. These people are absolutely despicable, despicable, disgusting scum. Now, um, I want to talk to, uh, to Kyle when we come back, this FBI whistleblower who has just been the wealth of information that he has been sharing is 
has been amazing. Um, and I want to talk to him. But uh, first, we want to thank our sponsor, Preborn. So last year, because of you guys, our viewers, Preborn's network of clinics saw over 58,000 babies saved. That is huge. Thank you guys. For those of you who donated, thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, for those of you who are new to Preborn, you haven't heard of them, they are like one of my very favorite organizations to work with because they make this really easy for me. All I do is sit up here and tell you what their mission is, and that is to save babies from abortion. So what they do is they have their network of clinics that are oftentimes right next to Planned Parenthoods, these abortion clinics. And uh, I'm sorry, abortion facilities. One of my viewers pointed out to me, don't call it a clinic like they're helping people. They're killing people. You're right. It's an abortion facility. And I should not have used that, that term clinic. So they sit right next to these abortion facilities. And instead of a woman going into the abortion facility and being told that this is just a clump of cells, you can just get rid of it at any time. It's totally fine. These women are shown the truth at these preborn clinics. They are shown this is a baby inside of you. This is your baby. They hear the heartbeat on the ultrasound. And those of you who are parents, you understand what a life-changing moment that is to hear your baby's heartbeat on the ultrasound, to see your baby inside of you. And when they get that ultrasound, it doubles the baby's chance at life. The ultrasounds are $28. So $28 a month could be the difference between the life and death of a baby. I would ask if you guys have that $28 to spare or maybe more, you can go to preborn.com slash Sarah. I can't think of a better way to uh, to donate money knowing that it is going to saving babies' lives. You can go to preborn.com slash Sarah. We've covered this story uh, several times now as new information continues to come out. But today we find another new twist in the pipe bombs discovered on January 6, 2021, outside of the DNC and RNC headquarters. Now, I want to play just as a reminder, uh, the man caught on security cameras around the city with these pipe bombs. Watch. This is somebody with a, with a mask on, wearing a hat. They're walking in front of the DNC, which is out of the view on the right-hand side. You'll see him come into view. He goes to one police car. He goes to another police car. He's holding a backpack. He's got a mask on. He's talking to the police. And within a minute, they start scrambling. You'll see the camera turn to the pipe bomb, the location of the pipe bomb. By the way, that's, a, I believe, the Metro police are now getting out of their car. And that's uh, Vice President-elect detail in the black SUV, I believe. So the story is that this man was tracked by security footage heading into a metro station, at which point the FBI was able to identify the fare card that was used and track the man to Northern Virginia, where he got off and entered a car whose license plate matched the fare card. So same person, I assume. I'm going to ask Kyle here in a second. Um, if so, I'd say that's a pretty solid lead. But after an FBI team began further investigations on this man, they were suddenly stonewalled and told to back off. And what's more, 
Turns out this person had government security clearances. How peculiar. I want to welcome on Kyle Serafin, former FBI special agent assigned to the pipe bomb investigation. Kyle, um, I've been following your, your work for a while now, and I appreciate you joining. Hi, Sarah. It's good to be with you. Um, let's let's get really clear, because I think there's so many Please. conspiracies and there's so many people that have misconceptions about what's going on in there. There's one little tweak I'm going to say. And, and by the way, Blaze has been way out in front of everybody. It's between you and Revolver with Steve Baker out there getting it done. So the individual that found the pipe bomb that was in front of the DNC apparently was a plainclothes mm -hmm. United States Capitol Police officer. But the individual that you just showed in the hoodie that person, we're told, was the one dropping the bombs on January 5th, the night before. Okay. And that person, as you correctly identified, there was a Metro card and a timestamp that was, uh, you know, briefed to me and my team. And then they tied that to the same name. Whoever bought that card also had a vehicle that was um, that was the pickup vehicle for that individual. And I would say that the odds are is that it's probably not the same person, that the person who did the pickup and actually paid for the Metro card may not have actually been the person in the hoodie, mm -hmm. but you're exactly right that that is a very good place to start. And it's very peculiar that three years ago, my team and I were told that we couldn't continue doing surveillance on him. And we also made kind of a, an unusual request for FBI agents saying, hey, we're not the case agents, but would you like us to go do a bump on this person? A bump is kind of an incidental interview and see if we can size them up and see if this is the right person if they want to come clean. And we were told absolutely not. And my team was never reassigned to that case after three years. Wow. So, it, okay. So then can you confirm it is true that he is a retired Air Force chief master sergeant who did have government. He was like working as a government contractor. So he still had government security clearances. Is the, I should say the man who paid for the fare card and whose car it was that this gentleman got into. Yeah. So the the information that we were briefed and, and this is the other thing. This was a very fast moving and this was happening all in real time. Everybody was kind of scrambling. This seemed like the most important case to be working on regarding January 6th. So what we were briefed. Yes. Uh, retired Air Force an E9. That what was that's what was told to us that the bombs were inert. We were given all this stuff right up front, like the first week. Wow. Now, uh, subsequent research and, and the name of that individual is sitting with Congress. And so whether that is a uh, what we would call a dry hole, which is a dead end, or whether there's something fruitful there, I don't have the ability to in investigate anymore. I'm not a federal agent. I actually got removed from the FBI over this and other things. So one of the fun things was is that we, we briefed all this stuff. But after looking into it, the person did have a background with the Air Force, but wasn't a retired E-9, okay. but had spent a significant amount of time, did have the security clearance, was a government contractor. So most of that is true. And that's kind of how investigations work. Look, you get a lot of information up front. 80 or 90 percent of it will shake out. Some of it will prove to be false. And so that's what we got on that that fateful day. And I've reached out to my friends who are still working in that that, you know, sphere and working for that field office. And they have been put back on it, which, you know, it makes me wonder if Steve D'Antuano, who's the guy that many people will know because he was in charge of Detroit when they had the Whitmer investigation and then he got moved over to Washington Field and he was in charge of the uh, January 6th investigation. Uh, he did a, an interview with Thomas Massey and you know, did he perjure himself? That's the real question that I keep asking. That's really where I'm coming to. Is the FBI being honest with the public when they said that they had operable devices? What do they mean by that? Because we were told they were inert. And then Steve Baker has confirmed to me that when they they looked at them and they uh, they actually detonated these things, it was just a tiny little pop and they were not what we would call what I would call viable. Um, you know, everybody has a different definition of that word. Yeah, well, I mean, you, so let, let's talk about that, that viable bomb, if that is what it was. It does seem strange, doesn't it, that 
we're now hearing that Kamala Harris's detail was there at the DNC when the plainclothes Capitol Police officer came over and seemingly tipped the uh, police officers off that there was a bomb. And it's everyone seemed so casual. <laughs> Kyle, I, help me understand why, if this was a credible threat with a bomb that everyone really at the moment thought this is a viable bomb, this could go off at any second, why then would everyone be treating it so casually? There's no good explanation. I mean, it's just it defies all understanding and all experience in law enforcement. Nobody would treat a real bomb that way. Uh, nobody would treat a bomb that they couldn't confirm was actually a training device or fake that way. It doesn't make any sense. And then the other problem I have is that the Secret Service is far too good. You know, their, their, uh, their EOD teams do this for a living every single day with the highest stakes possible. So you're telling me that the most professional bomb sweep team in this country missed it and it was just sitting in plain sight under a park bench so that a passerby who's just a probably 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 someone not involved in anything. He's just a law enforcement officer who looks over and goes, that looks strangely familiar. I've been getting radio traffic or text messages saying they just found another one of these devices. That seems like a real problem. So he brings it to their attention and then they finish eating their sandwiches. And then here's the other thing. Yeah. Why did we not have there's there's two pieces to this. Why did we not have a citywide search in Washington, D.C. looking for more bombs? Because who leaves two bombs randomly and that's the end of it? And then the second thing is, why have we not seen a task force like Unabomber style task force for someone who's willing to leave an indiscriminate explosive device in our nation's capital? And then we just sort of believe that that's never going to happen again. Like, well, the day is over, so it's it's done None of that makes any sense either. And that's why people have to keep writing the story. And I think that's why members of Congress are starting to look at it and go like, wait a minute, this actually doesn't make any sense. The FBI is obviously doing something that, that is illogical right. and it's not the way. And, and the FBI is not that incompetent either. You know, mm. uh, I, I brought this up earlier to, uh, to another journalist, but the FBI was able to find a partial VIN number off the truck that was transporting the bomb for the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. And they found that little partial VIN number under four stories of rubble from an actually demolished bomb. They were able to tie that back to the contracts. They were able to go back and get indictments and find out who drove it, et cetera, et cetera. So all of these things were done from a demolished weapon that actually went off and left just a tiny fragment of evidence. And you're telling me that these unexploded devices that went down to Quantico, where we have an excellent lab that the American tax taxpayers pay for, mm. like that wasn't able to get something of value. And then the cell phone data is corrupted. So interestingly Oops. enough, the little story that you and I just discussed that between the fair and the metro and this individual in the hoodie and all that kind of stuff that was brought up without any prompting by Steve D'Antuano while he was being questioned about something else by Congressman Thomas Massey. And anybody who's ever done criminal investigations, you go and you ask somebody, there's a great story I had like really early on in my career. I go and I knock on the door and I say, hey man, uh, I'm here to talk to you. Uh, are you impersonating a federal agent online? And the guy goes, oh, thank God. I thought you were here about my internet search history. And you go, well, <laughs> I wasn't, but now I am, right? I mean, you drop things on accident all right. the time, these kind of moments. And if you look at Steve D'Antuano, if you watch his mannerisms and you listen to him speak in public, he's terrible at it. I mean, he's just mediocre at presenting evidence. And I have no, no doubt that there's something twisted in his mind where he was told, hey, make sure you discredit this theory. But why? I don't know. And, and, and that's what that behavior looks like in that transcribed interview. Yeah. I mean, so... I, I want to, before we go, I do want to ask you just where, where do we go with the FBI? Because I'm, I am all in favor of like burn the whole thing the hell down because all of them are corrupt. But I, I want to, I want to switch gears here and kind of get back to um, January 6th. I heard a lot about 
teams that were abandoning leads like what we're talking about here, leads that could have led you to who the pipe bomber was in favor of pursuing like low priority leads on, you know, well, let's make sure to find out who was even flying into D.C. on January 5th so we can maybe target them just in case they happen to attend a Trump rally. What, like, how, how much can you tell me about that? It's all about opportunity cost. There's a fixed number of agents. There's a certain amount of time in every single day, and there's only so much anybody can investigate. So if you assign people to run down the MAGA grandmas and do the turn in your MAGA neighbor game, then you're going to be doing knocking on doors and finding out where people were. And you're not going to be doing let's find this pipe bomber who apparently, according to the FBI, dropped two viable devices that, like I said, we're briefed were not either way. Using an inert device to uh, to engage in sort of terrorism, that's sort of what the FBI does in all the setup jobs. Whenever they are doing an undercover and they are trying to bust up a, a domestic terror or an international terror threat, they're more than happy to provide fake devices. They'll still get real convictions. So you still treat them as real because the, the terror to the public is real. Nobody knows that they're not until they prove otherwise. And like I said, we're getting we're getting both sides of the coin here. But the idea that that we're they're spending all their time doing something running after misdemeanors. I was explicitly trained at the FBI's academy. The FBI doesn't mess around with misdemeanors. They don't even mess around with low-level felonies because they're a waste of time. We're talking about, in theory, the FBI, which used to mean something not too long ago. We thought they would actually go after real serious crimes and not people walking around with a flagpole. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so that does lead me to what... What do we do? Where do we go next? Because as you point out, the FBI was supposed to be this esteemed, you know, department that prides themselves in, you know, um, doing the things that you mentioned that you were trained to do. But it seems a whole lot like they've just turned into uh, another weaponized department of the Biden regime who is dead set on finding, you know, as much uh, white guys as they can who they want to call domestic terrorists and who are targeting, you know, grandmas waving their flags and in the Capitol. They want to throw all these people in prison. Uh, they want to investigate pro-life protesters who are peacefully protesting and now are facing 11 years in federal prison. I mean, you are talking about really devious, I would argue, evil things that the FBI is now in charge of. I don't know how the hell you fix it other than burn the whole freaking thing down. I agree with you in principle because that's the right answer, obviously. Uh, but unfortunately, I don't think there's any political will to do that. So we have to kind yeah. of what are the half measures that work? Uh, number one, the FBI needs to lose what we call the domestic intelligence mission. When you have intelligence capabilities, which are all national security tools, and then you apply that to an organization that does law enforcement. I mean, in other words, they can lock you up. You have what's called a secret police in any society that's ever existed in the last 200 years. So secret police are antithetical to the American people's sort of sensibilities. We shouldn't have that. And then the second thing you can do is we need to, we absolutely need to unroot the FBI from where that corrupt swamp is, that sort of like nasty uh, symbiotic relationship that happens between the Washington field office and the headquarters building, the Hoover building. Those are five minutes walk away. And most of the people that are really the worst, what they'll do is they basically find themselves at headquarters doing some supervisory job. They bounce over for a GS-14, then a GS-15. They go back and forth between these. And suddenly you've got the number two and the number three people in the FBI. And they haven't left D.C. in 10 or 15 years. And they haven't done casework in 10 or 15 years either, by the way. So you've got these folks that are literally doing that. And then the second thing is they're listening to all the support employees who live in D.C., who think like D.C., who are inside the Beltway. And they think government is the solution to everything. So we need to unroot it. And the cheapest and the fastest way to do that would be send them to Huntsville, Alabama. The American people have already spent two and a half billion dollars building a facility there. So they have another headquarters building. We can just move them down there. And then whenever those folks want to promote, they can promote out to the field. 
you know, and they can mm-hmm. they can move to uh, Milwaukee or they can move to Seattle and then they can come back to Alabama if they want to stay at headquarters. And that way you don't have that toxic sort of ping pong ball back and forth to the top ranks where they've never heard an outside opinion and they've never been around like regular Americans like you're just talking about. Most people don't think the way folks in D.C. do. And so it'd be nice to just unroot this problem. It's a half measure for sure, but I think it's at least a start. Yeah, I well, I guess I would say maybe your uh, your suggestion is maybe a little more rational than mine. All right, <laughs> I'll I'll give you that, Kyle. Um, tell everyone. Well, for I look, I appreciate you. Um, I, I realize, you know, I I would say maybe correct me if I'm wrong. You lost a lot for speaking out and telling the truth. And I appreciate it because Americans deserve to know what their government is doing and oftentimes being weaponized against them. And I just appreciate your work so much. Tell everyone where they can find you. Sure. Folks can find me on Rumble, uh, rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. So just my name. Uh, they can also find me on the various social media outlets. I'm on Twitter pretty much and I'm on True Social and I have some minor presence on Instagram. Those are all at Kyle Serafin. And, and regarding giving up a lot, I mean, the what a sad state of affairs in America where giving up your job for the right reason is not the standard. I actually yeah. kind of a little sad about that. I think my family gave up far more knowing that this was going to be tough. But, you know, as a, as a Christian who who basically said, hey, this is a pro-life stance and that's where we started and we're only going to do the right thing. And if that means we don't have a job, then we don't have a job. God's always provided. And luckily we've landed on our feet or I would say we're fortunate and blessed enough to do that. So I appreciate the support. But um this should be the standard for Americans. It really ought to be. Look at it. Anybody who's working in federal employment, I can just say it right. Like I can say that across the board. If somebody asks you to do something that's illegal, immoral, or unethical, it's actually your duty to the American people and to the Constitution to just say no. And then just see where you land. And it turns out the American people have big hearts. Yes. Yeah. Well, Kyle, you are an honorable man, and uh, I appreciate you. We need more Kyle Serafins in the world. Uh, will you come back soon? Of course. All Absolutely. right. Great. Thank you so much, Kyle. Thanks, sir. All right. We will be right back. My next guests are Montana parents Todd and Krista Kolstad, who lost custody of their 14-year-old daughter because of a disagreement over her desire to change genders. The state's Child and Family Services reportedly took custody of the teen after allegations of suicidal thoughts. And despite their objections, their teen daughter, who we are calling Jennifer for privacy reasons, was eventually moved to a residential care facility in Wyoming. Uh, Todd and Krista, I appreciate you joining me today. Now, um, I feel like this is a loaded question, but I've read your story. I've listened to your story. I don't really want to tell it for you. Um, So tell me how this all began, because I know I heard you say that your daughter uh, has suffered from some mental health issues that were completely unrelated to anything having to do with gender in the past. She's battled some mental health issues. But now all of a sudden we're talking about, uh, you know, your daughter possibly being suicidal. And now the state has your child like bring 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 me to where you're at. Sure. And if I'm rattling on too much, just tell me. So um, on Friday, August 18th, uh, our our daughter was was very angry with us. And she made some remarks to a friend of hers that she was thinking of committing suicide. And this was done over text messages. So she said that, you know, she was thinking about taking her life and, and made these threats to another child. And so at 148, the police 
the local police called us and said, you know, your, your daughter's making these threats. And I stayed on the phone with a police officer and I walked down the hallway and I spoke to Jennifer while the officer was on the phone. And again, this was at like 1.48. And um, I had a conversation with him and I said, I felt that if she was in danger, that we would certainly transport her to the hospital and call for emergency services. But I didn't feel that that was the case right then. So then at about 7.40 that night is when Children's Services showed up at our door because the officer could not lay eyes on our child or speak to our child, even though he didn't ask to do those things. He didn't come to our house or anything. He simply made a phone call. Right. So from there, um, you've probably heard the story. I gave them a, a tour of my home and I wasn't real sure, like, how to, what what goes on? What do you do? You know, it's, it's definitely um, off-putting oh, and scary. Yeah to have these people show up at your house when you've never done anything. So our attitude was that we're hundred percent transparent because we have nothing to hide. And so we gave her a tour of the home and all the seller stuff. And then she wanted to talk to our daughter and we allowed that. But then we were kind of like, after a few minutes, we were like, eh, maybe we should go out. They were on the front porch and we we're like, maybe we should go out there. Maybe we should see what's going on. So we went out there and at that point um, we were told that our daughter had ingested toilet bowl cleaner and also um, ibuprofen earlier in the day and needed to go to the hospital and get checked. Okay. So, but that ended up not being the case and you tell me if I have this right, that ended up not being the case and you guys pretty much figured that that was not the case in the moment because your daughter has a history of uh, these these types of, you know, uh, saying that she's going to do something like this and and then not following through with it. Do I have that right? Exactly. And also that day in particular, we were with her all day long. We had company over at the house. She had just gotten a new puppy. And so um, we were with her. So it was really clear that didn't happen. And we also, um, I was working at, at, in the kitchen table with my laptop all day. So that's where the cleaners were. That's where the, any medications were. So I knew that she hadn't done that. So we really felt that this was attention seeking Mm -hmm. and we let the social worker know, we feel that this is attention seeking, but we're going to err on the side of caution and absolutely let's go to the hospital and make sure she's okay and make sure she's checked out. Now, when did you when did you guys find out? Because I know you didn't find out for a while that your daughter was uh, identifying as a male named Leo. When when did you find that out in this process? Yeah, there was two two instances. So um, approximately two years before that, our church told us that um, she was telling people her name was Leo and that she was a boy. And we started getting text messages from different residents in that town saying what she was doing and running with a bad crowd. And then for the last two years since then, absolutely nothing to do with it. Just a great kid doing great in school, happy all the time. And, well, then, and I think it's yeah, also this. important to mention that when yeah. that incident happened with the church and her saying this, we had a whole conversation with her on, you know, why would someone feel this way? What, what's going on? Is something bothering you? You know, and then we actually put her in counseling because we understood as parents, it's not something she was going to listen to us about. Mm-hmm. Right. And it would better be worked out with a counselor. So she was in counseling for the, the, those incidents. And we really didn't hear much about it again over the two-year period at all. Okay. Yeah, so it, what kicked it off this time was 
the place that she worked called and asked for our son and could he come into work wow. and so we had asked her about it you know and again we asked her about it there was never any coming down hard on her we discussed it with her why are they saying this right. and when so, that's what led to it. okay so you're you're just you're just this is all being thrown at you all at once and mm -hmm. so they end up uh, they said, well, she said that she tried to kill herself for taking her to the hospital. And tell me about what happened. How were you guys treated by the medical staff when you guys got to the hospital? So as soon as we got to the emergency room, um, she had started saying that she wanted to be called Leo and he, him, and that she was transgender. And we, we were like, well, that's not something that we believe in. It's not something that we're willing to support. We prefer that you call her by her birth name. They were also doing a lot was going on in the emergency room. So they were doing blood work and, and monitoring her heart because obviously if someone had drank toilet bowl cleaner and taken that amount of right. pills, we would be in a bad yeah. situation. Yeah. So there was a lot going on in the emergency room. So they, they kind of just glossed over the issue. But then we were told she has to be admitted because we have to make sure she's okay. Plus, when someone expresses these um, these these ideas of wanting to kill themselves, it's good to put them on the three-day you know hold where they're watched for three days. And we were fine with that. We were like, okay. So we knew she was going to be admitted. And so we went home very late that night. And the next day we went back to the hospital, which was um, Saturday the 19th. And that's kind of where everything just took a downward spiral and, and started happening from there. And it, do I have this correct that the the hospital staff would do things such as, um, first of all, call call your daughter by incorrect pronouns, call your daughter he, him, and call, call her Leo. But also they would do things such as, uh, you would ask for her to eat her nutritious part of her meal uh, first, encourage your daughter to eat the nutritious part of her meal first, and the medical staff would override you by calling out to others, come give this, bo come give this boy a banana split. Yeah, she she rolled her eyes at, at us and was very much like, <sighs> and um, then she yelled down the hallway, get this young man a banana split dessert. So things like that were going on. There was also an aide that sat outside my daughter's room that was talking about how she was going to have top surgery and um, how she was non-binary. So oh things goodness. like that were going on. Then the hospital was giving her um, men's products to use after we were like, we we don't want that. Oh we're gosh. not OK with that. Uh, how, how did how did you react in that moment? And I, I mean, I, and I, I, I don't mean this. As a joke, it's, it's going to sound like one. How, like, how how did you not go to jail for assault? Because I'm listening to you and I'm infuriated at the thought of someone overriding my decision as a parent for my child. So when we were there, we the entire time, both of us stayed completely respectable to wow. them and stayed polite. However, um, we uh, my wife did mention to them, turned in a complaint about the last comment that we were just discussing, right. but they were being completely disrespectful back. It, they didn't try to hide it whatsoever. They were just flat out, not just rolling their eyes, but doing it in a way to make it clear what their stance was. So. And I felt, we felt like if we were going to react and react yeah. in anger, that they were going to use that against us. Yeah. They were then right. going to turn around and say, look, look at these parents, look at how they're acting. So we were very careful to make it known that we were unhappy, but do it in such a way that, um, I guess that we 
we weren't yelling or anything like right. that. Yes, you were you were very respectful. And uh, I commend you for that, because I'm sure that it took a lot of willpower and um, strength. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine. So so walk me through what happened after that to lead to a court giving the state custody of your daughter. Um, one thing that was going on in there that was overlapping what we we're just talking about was we had never heard it except for we heard our, our daughter mentioned it, talk about Wyoming and um, didn't really know why. And then when the hospital staff was talking about it too, we knew there must be something to that. So we went ahead and right there, right in front of the doctors, we did a, a, a Google lookup and we saw that when you look at Montana, Idaho, North and South Dakota, every one of those states bans child being given um, gender care or transitioning without parental approval, except for Wyoming. Mm. And that's where the hub is. And they had actually just lost the legal battle regarding that. So it was okay for, for them to do it in that state. So that was alarming right off the bat. So, but, right. but what, but what reason did the state give for saying you guys aren't fit to parent your child? We are taking, I mean, this is state sponsored kidnapping. What, what reason did yes. they give? So, um, they wanted her to go to a, an acute psychiatric care facility for inpatient care and counseling. And we a hundred percent agreed with that. We were totally fine with that. We felt, you know what, th this needs to happen. She definitely needs more help than we're able to provide. We were told at that point that there were six facilities in the state of Montana, and then there was this one over in Wyoming. And that's when we pulled up on our cell phones and we realized Wyoming didn't have the same laws in effect that um, Montana did. So we said to our CPS worker right there in the room and the doctor and everybody was there, we said, you know, it doesn't look like they have the same things in, in a place that Montana does. We're what are our rights? Who, who's going to protect our daughter? Who can answer our questions? And we were asking questions like that. And our CPS worker, she said, um, well, that's probably not even going to happen. So we're not going to worry about it. And if we have to cross that bridge, she said, we'll cross that bridge together if we have to come to it. So we were kind of like, eh, I don't really trust you and, and stuff, but we were under the impression that they were looking for a bed in Montana. So we had expressed that we preferred Billings, Montana, because we go there for some medical things quite often. And um, they knew that that's what we, we wanted, but we were open to any bed in Montana. So what happened was on the on August 22nd, when I left the hospital, we were told she was next in line for a bed in Billings, but it still could be a day or so. So we were like, OK, we think we're seeing a light at the end of this tunnel. and We're going to get somewhere. Then that evening, it was between 730 and 8. The hospital called us and said that a bed had opened up in Wyoming and that she needed to go. Mm. And so uh, we were very, you know, shocked and, and taken aback. And we were like, OK, well, where in Wyoming? We weren't told the name of the facility. Oh we gosh. none of our questions were like, who can answer our questions? Who can help us with this? What are our rights? And nobody had any information for us. So they said, um, you know, she has to go. She's not doing any good in this hospital. We're not doing her any good. And, and I understood that, but right. we were like, wait, we just, who can help us with what's going to happen next? And within 10 minutes of that phone call ending is when we were served with papers, removing her from our care. And mm. the next oh day gosh. she was transported to Wyoming. Yeah, oh and, my gosh. And one thing um, just prior to that, even though they said she was next in line for a bed in Billings, there was almost an unspoken, uh, there was 
uh, nonverbal cues going back and forth between the medics and our daughter, like assuring mm. her that that ain't going to happen. We're just telling your parents what they want to hear. So we kind of knew they were going to do that. Wow. There was, you could tell. You could tell so. by the body language. Um, okay. Yeah, we felt definitely. that that's what was happening. Yeah. So I, I still have some questions for you. Um, yeah, can I, I've got to take a quick break and then I want to come back and, and talk to you more about where you're at in this process. Um, so, okay. okay. All right. Let's go ahead and uh, we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back. All right, so um, I want to bring, I want to bring back in these. Um, gosh, I feel s- just terrible for you guys, Todd and Krista Kolstad, who are dealing with uh, Montana kidnapping their daughter because at the end of the day, they didn't agree to affirm her use of the wrong pronouns. And I want to I want to find out where you guys where are you at now in the process because you're talking about August is when this all started, um, and so where where are you at in this process? Where is your daughter right now? Um, where are we at on February first, twenty twenty four? She was there for about a month, and then they brought her back to Montana and put her in a group home. At the end, it was like September 25th, I believe. And so since then, every month we've we've had a court, like a court hearing just to get a, a status update on the case and the way that things are. And our public defenders have always just told us, just play nice and keep your head down and then you'll get your daughter back in the next six to nine months after she completes this residential program and you can all move on with your lives. Well, that's... Not exactly true because they socially transitioned her totally while in the group home. Oh She's allowed to go by a different name. She's she shaved her head. She wears a chest binder. She has all men's clothes. Um, she goes to a school group. It's called a, it's a therapeutic setting. So it's not like a regular school, but she's in all boys groups at school and presents herself as a boy. Um, they let her go to church, which we're totally fine with, but no one's ever told us the name of the church so that we could make sure that their beliefs were in line with ours. I mean, it could be the church of Satan. We, we don't know. We've never been told anything. And so they've done all of these things in the meantime. So it came to a head on January 19th. We had a hearing. And at that point, CPS said that they wanted they wanted um, our daughter placed with the birth mom because we we weren't therapeutically transitioning her, which was in her therapeutic best needs. And um, so they wanted her place with her birth mom and CPS wanted out of the case altogether. But the judge ruled that um, CPS had to stay involved for six months because I don't know if there's just no experience with sending a child to Canada, but there's a lot involved. So it would kind of leave our daughter in in the wind, you know, um, because all this paperwork has to be done and, and think, exams need to be completed before she, she can't just go to Canada. And, and, and I want to, so I want to, I want to jump in here for a second and just, just so the audience, if they don't know. So tell, tell me if I have this correct. Uh, Jennifer's birth mom, it has not been in the picture uh, for all intents and purposes. Todd, you have raised her since birth. And I know uh, Krista, you came in the picture when she was about six. Do I have that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yes. so putting her with her birth mom would be like, putting her, uh, she's now living with a stranger, basically. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, because we have have a son that has resided with the birth mom this whole time, and our daughter has resided with us. Okay. So, um, always was around me. And, um, 
And yeah. and there's some we don't want to sling mud or anything by any means, but there's some question about is that a safe environment? What goes on up there? Right. And so CPS said the judge ruled that CPS has to stay involved for the next six months. They actually have custody of our daughter because no one's even seen this woman's home to make sure it's safe or anything like that. So they're supposed to be completing those investigations. But in the meantime, they are set to send her to Canada, period. And that's the end of it. They made it quite clear to us that reunification isn't going to be what we expect, that she's not going to be under our roof, but we will have the opportunity oh to be in her life. Oh, my God. Yeah. Just to amplify, too, uh, we prior to them doing this, all they cared about was her being transitioned. So they, the guardian had lied and they sent to our house prior to this said, we, you know, we have nice home, every, you know, good family, but they said, if we're not going to agree to call her by her preferred um, uh, pronouns mm -hmm. and uh, let her, you know, be raised as a boy, then we're not going to like what she has to say in court. That's what she said. Do you guys? So we uh, knew it, that's cut and dry. That's bottom line right there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What? What? So, uh, do you have? I mean, you mentioned public defenders. Do you have some good lawyers? I know uh, we were both. I was on Megan Kelly's show yesterday. You guys were on as well. Um, I know she, she. Have you talked to the people who she was going to put you in touch with yet? Because I, I have to believe that there is a way that you guys can fight back against this. Um. Sort of. People are contacting to with us, but we haven't retained legal counsel yet. Okay. A lot of the places that want to help us are not licensed in the state of Montana. So they, I guess they kind of source it out to a family lawyer, who, someone who specializes in family law in Montana. And so we have agencies who are looking for a specialized family law lawyer in Montana to take the case. So yeah. they're actively looking for us, um, but something hasn't come up yet. Okay. Um, do you guys have any sort of fundraising uh, apparatus that people can make donations to? I'm sure this is not going to be um, cheap. Right. There is a give, send, go set up. And so um, we would encourage people if they feel that they're able to go ahead and, and visit that page. Great. Can you uh, tell tell everyone what that, do you know the, the URL or search? I, I what, what can they search for? Um, um, I think just Cole stats on Give, Send, Go Perfect. should bring it up. Great. And we will we'll make sure to to put that in the description of, of this video so people know where to find it. Um, Todd and Krista, I I cannot even imagine what you guys are going through. It is it is evil. It is demonic what's happening right now in this country, in the state of Montana and all of these other states where they think that they should have the say, the final say, the final authority over someone's child rather than their own parent who God has entrusted to, of course, raise and parent that child the way that they see fit uh, and certainly not to uh, believe in falsities about who they really are and what their gender is. And I just I, I cannot my heart goes out to you guys. Um, I appreciate you guys speaking out and I hope that you will keep us updated of this process because we want to help however we can. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you guys. God bless you. Thank you. I'll be praying for you guys. Oh. <sighs> All right, I gotta gotta take a little break before I break some shit. Uh, we'll be right back. I want to play the Attorney General of DC talking about you know um, 
criminals, the the rise of crime in D.C. And I, you know what? Just just watch. During the discussion, residents did not hold back, voicing their frustrations. Am I blaming the system? Many questioning why kids aren't being held accountable. We as a city and a community need to be much more focused on prevention and surrounding young people and their families with resources if we want to be safer in the long run. We cannot prosecute and arrest our way out of it. We cannot prosecute and arrest our way out of it. What? So we're just going to continue letting people commit crimes? I don't, these people are nuts. They don't understand any of this. And yet they're the ones running things. Stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.